Chapter One of The Return of Alfred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. To those in many countries who have generously assumed responsibility for the authorship of Patricia Brent Spinster, this book is dedicated by the author. Chapter One The Girl at the Window. All change! The station master was wary of the phrase. He had shouted it, murmured it, purred it, and threatened with it, until he felt it the most odious combination of words the language contained. All change, sir, he repeated irritably, as the passenger for whose benefit he had made the statement showed no sign of movement. Strike begins at ten, he added. But it's not ten yet, smiled the young man, as he glanced at his wrist watch. There won't be time to get on to Upper Saxton, was the reply. We've had instructions to warn all passengers that trains may be left derelict at ten o'clock. Anyway, I think I'll chance it was the imperturbable reply, and the fair-haired passenger, with his smiling blue eyes, proceeded to light a cigarette. "'Well, sir, I've warned you,' said the station-master, with the air of a man who wishes to clear himself of all responsibility. "'You most certainly have,' agreed the passenger, as he dropped the match upon the carpeted floor of the first-class compartment and put his foot upon it. The station-master had promised to be home by nine o'clock to a stewed steak and onion supper, a dish dear to his heart, and now he had been delayed nearly an hour by this miserable business of trying to explain to congenital idiots that if they persisted in their folly they would, in all probability, be left stranded, and that it was no use threatening him with legal proceedings. In return they had done nothing but pester him with their ridiculous questions as to what the company meant to do. Could he recommend a good hotel? Where could a motor-car be obtained? He banged to the door viciously. He hated strikes. He hated trade unions. He hated railways. He hated everything connected with locomotion. It was only from sheer lack of inspiration that he did not curse the day that gave to the world George Stevenson. "'Right, sir,' queried the guard, his whistle lifted towards his lips. "'Right,' echoed the station-master. "'One passenger won't get out,' he added, and he waved his hand with the air of a Pontius Pilate, repudiating all responsibility for the folly of others. He was wondering what, in the natural order of things, would be the effect of half an hour's delay upon stewed steak and onions. There was a shrill whistle, a green light described an arc-like movement, and the station-master turned to escape from a fiery-faced little man with an eye like a fish and a moustache like a walrus. On his lips the station-master saw imbecile questions framing themselves. Why didn't that gentleman get— The station-master fled. Realization had suddenly come to him that every passenger who had alighted from the train at his suggestion would inevitably ask the same question. As the train gathered speed, the solitary passenger found himself wondering whether or no he had been wise in disregarding the advice officially tendered. There was something about the station-master, he decided, that had irritated him. He disliked taking advice from men who— because they were fair, spared the use of a razor. It was almost as bad as not washing your neck because you're addicted to high colours. He had been warned at Liverpool Street that the strike would begin at ten o'clock, 
and that it was more than doubtful if the train would get through to Norwich, its destination. Anxious and misguided officials even refused to book beyond Upper Saxton, where they were due at 9.58, but the train was late, and on arrival at Bittleborough the stationmaster had become almost hysterical in his efforts to thwart the NUR, which he hated. Arguing that the leaving of trains derelict was against all precedent, and anxious to get on to Cromer, where the Grand Garden Hotel had a room booked for James Smith, Esquire, the passenger had decided to carry on. Once at Norwich, he knew he could get a car or a taxicab to run him to his destination. Now that he was committed to the adventure, he found himself curious to see what actually would happen at ten o'clock. At least he could sleep in the first-class compartment he occupied. He had known less comfortable quarters in France during the Somme battles, for instance. James Smith. How familiar the old name had seemed as he added it to the telegraph form. Private James Smith. Why had he given the name to the recruiting officer on that August morning seven years before? He had often wondered. He had no thought of enlisting other than under his own name. But somehow, when the moment came, Darrell Hildreth had seemed to cry aloud for a commission, and that was just what he was most anxious to avoid. He was determined to do his bit in the ranks. Yet, four and a half years later, he had returned to private life as Lieutenant Colonel Darrell Hildreth, DSO, MCMM. He smiled a little grimly at the recollection. Those five years had meant something more than a temporary military rank and a string of initials after his name. They had somehow or other changed things. Just how, he had never been able quite to decide. Some new and strange influence seemed to have asserted itself. His perceptions had become keener, his judgments more critical, his general outlook more fatalistic. He had returned to his old niche, but somehow it did not seem to be his. He had gone away, one of England's young barbarians, as Matthew Arnold expressed it, and he had returned. What? What had happened out there to bring about such a change? There had been killing, suffering, and, yes, perhaps that was it, brotherhood. Class differences had been brushed aside. The man who at home would have touched a respectful cap to him had called him chum or matey, had spoken of his mother and family, of his own feelings. There had been no attempt to disguise emotion. Strong men had wept, big enough of heart not to feel ashamed. There had been self-sacrifice, too, and sentiment, and a belief in God. Suddenly a sort of time-machine had thrust him back five years into an environment that no longer fitted. "'By Jove! They were humming along at a spanking pace,' was his thought, as he glanced out of the window at the flying hedges and trees. "'Direct action, or no direct action!' Yes, he now saw things that hitherto had evaded him, among others those little crinkles that manifested themselves in Vera Truscombe's nose when she laughed. Hitherto she had seemed to him charming, a typical healthy-minded English girl, good-looking, well-born, popular, everything she should be, in fact, and all the time her nose had crinkled and he had not seen it. In a vague way he had known that his uncle was set upon joining up the Hildreth and Truscombe estates, and when Sir John Hildreth, ninth baronet, set his mind upon a thing, it invariably meant either the thing became an accomplished fact, or, as an alternative, that there was a series of violent explosions. 
"'What the devil does her nose matter?' his uncle had shouted that day in the library at Hildreth Hall, when he heard of the impending rupture of his plans, and his nephew had found it utterly impossible to explain that those crinkles in Vera Truscombe's nose were to him what a contemptible little army had proved to the Germans, an insurmountable obstacle. With the assurance of a confirmed bachelor, Sir John had plunged into his matchmaking schemes without even consulting his sister, Mrs. Compton Stacy, whose sound common sense and tact had rescued him from many an awkward situation into which his impulsive egotism had plunged him. "'Isn't he my heir?' Sir John had thundered. "'To the title and estates, yes,' she had replied calmly. "'But not to your taste in women.' "'He's a damn ungrateful young scoundrel!' The words had been wrapped out with all the force of Sir John's volcanic nature. His short white moustache had bristled, his naturally rubicund complexion had taken on a deeper hue, as it always did when he was angry. In a vague way the little red-faced passenger on the platform had reminded the adventurous passenger of his uncle. "'He's as bad as that infernal fellow Peters!' Sir John had exploded. Sooner or later he always dragged in the name of his late butler, with whom the growing of a moustache had been the cause of his feudal undoing. At the first sound of war Peters had enlisted. Just how he had got his fifteen stone past the critical eye of the doctor into the army no one knew. Sir John Hildreth was furious at losing the best butler he had ever known, and had called it damned unnecessary. When, four and a half years later, Peters had stepped from behind that veil of mystery known as demobilization into the bright glare of civilian life, plus a henna-coloured moustache of gigantic proportions, the irate baronet had become almost apoplectic with rage. "'What the devil do you mean by it, Peters?' he had exploded. "'Go and shave that damn thing off at once!' During his years in the army, Peters had discovered, in himself, a new and hitherto unsuspected capacity. Nature had endowed him with the ability to grow a moustache of exactly the same curve and tint as that of Lord Kitchener, only more so. Sir John had stormed and sworn, damned the war, execrated all moustaches as unhygienic and obscene. Damn filthy, was his phrase, but Peters remained obdurate, and he'd given notice. At this Sir John had sworn the more, he vowed that the very sight of the auburn wealth upon Peter's upper lip made all thought of soup revolting to him. He reminded Peters of his fifteen years' service with the Hildreth. He offered to raise his wages, and ended by telling him to go to hell. Peters had temporized by going to Hasselmere, where he possessed a sister in the trade. Del Hildreth had suggested that his uncle should advertise for a modern Delilah which had resulted in an even greater flow of eloquence and profanity from Sir John, who had failed to catch the allusion, a circumstance that increased his annoyance. Realising that a butler with an auburn moustache of gigantic proportions would be like a fox-terrier with an unbitten tail, Peters had subsequently accepted service as a gentleman's gentleman with a nephew and heir, a post that would give him greater liberty to cultivate his moustache and indulge his passion for motorcycling. As it began to dawn upon Sir John that he was in danger of a second defeat, he had proceeded to explode like the backfiring of a high-power racing car. Finally, he had delivered an ultimatum to his nephew. 
it was either marriage with Vera Truscombe or being cut off with a shilling. Smith could almost hear the final terrific explosion which had taken place when he had made it clear that he could not accept his uncle's matrimonial views. He had been told to go to the devil, and go pseudonymously. In other words, he was told not to drag the ancient name of Hildreth into the mire. He had striven to explain to his uncle that the war had made a difference, only to be told that any fool could see that by the income tax. The upshot of the interview was that he had vowed to drop the family name, and never use it again without his uncle's permission, whereat Sir John had vociferated that he was a damn ungrateful young puppy, and had shot out of the library like a howitzer shell. Within the next hour he had discharged his chauffeur, the head gardener, and a frightened housemaid whom he encountered in a corridor. Smith smiled at the thought of the periodical discharges to which the domestics at Hildreth Hall were subject. No one ever took them seriously. Sir John had been known to discharge the same man half a dozen times in one week. From the scene at Hildreth Hall, Smith's thoughts travelled to another scene at his own chambers in German Street. It had been less dramatic, but every whit as interesting. Peters had... Suddenly he glanced at his wrist-watch. The hands pointed to five minutes to ten. In a flash, Sir John, Peter's moustache, and Vera Truscombe's nose had disappeared. The moment of drama was approaching. His eyes remained fixed upon the white dial of his watch. Would direct action triumph? If it did, he would find himself in the very devil of a hole. As the hands crept on, he found himself experiencing a pleasant thrill of excitement. He realized the feelings of the man in a film he had once seen, who, bound to a chair, watched a candle slowly burn down to the point when it would ignite a fuse attached to a hundredweight of high explosive immediately beneath him. Ten o'clock came. Still the train pounded on at a good forty miles an hour. One minute, two minutes, three minutes passed. Smith began to congratulate himself upon his foresight. He was conscious of a feeling of superiority over the passengers who had been so easily intimidated into relinquishing their journey. Such a triumph of mind over direct action was a thing worthy of another cigarette, he decided. Selecting one, he struck a match. As he did so, there was a sudden and violent grinding of brakes, and the train began to lose speed. In a flash he remembered that at Liverpool Street his watch had been four and a half minutes fast. He laughed, and the neglected match burned his fingers. Damn! He struck another match, lit the cigarette, and, with a quickening interest, rose and thrust his head and shoulders out of the carriage window. In the gathering dusk little was to be seen beyond the curve of dingy railway carriages. There was no signal inside, no township or village, in fact nothing but a flat landscape over which heavy rain-clouds were hurrying, as if anxious to get home before night finally closed in. The head of the guard appeared at the rear of the train. He waved his hand, and appeared to shout something which Smith could not hear above the noise of the brakes. Presently the man swung himself out upon the footboard, where he stood with a leg and arm extended, looking like some mechanical figure fixed to the side of the train. As they jerked to a standstill, the guard dropped to the permanent way, and approached the carriage from the window of which Smith leant, an interested spectator of direct action in process of application. "'We're not going any further,' said the guard. Smith regarded him curiously. 
"'I'm going on to Norwich, and eventually to Cromer,' he said, with an assurance he was far from feeling. "'I'm afraid you can't, sir,' said the guard civilly. He had now reached a point immediately beneath Smith. "'The strike's begun.' Smith did not reply immediately. The news required digesting. "'They warned you at Biddleborough.' "'But what's going to happen to you?' cried Smith. "'Capping out here, until the strike's all over?' We shall run the train on to the Upper Saxton siding and go home. I see. If you'll hand down your luggage, sir, said the guard, his professional instinct triumphing over his trade unionism. I think I'll go on with you to Upper Saxton, wherever that may be, said Smith, with the air of a man who has just solved a difficult problem. I'm afraid you can't, sir, was the reply, uttered with just a tinge of impatience. The strike's begun. It's against orders to carry passengers after ten o'clock. Then consider me a member of your union, smiled Smith. I'll pay the subscription now. He drew from his pocket a letter-case and proceeded to extract a one-pound note. Charlie! came a voice from the engine. What the hell are you doing, Bo? Stopping here all night? The guard waved his hand in acknowledgment of the remark, but without diverting his gaze from the note in Smith's hand. "'Can't be done, sir,' he said regretfully. "'Orders are orders. We'll have to get down, sir.' "'But your quarrel isn't with the passengers. It's with the company,' suggested Smith. "'If we didn't do something, the passengers wouldn't know there's a strike on.' "'Oh, little things like that are bound to get about,' said Smith pleasantly, as he returned the note to his case, and the case to his pocket. The guard turned aside with a sigh, and Smith lifted down his suitcase and gathered up his raincoat. Opening the door of the carriage, he dropped down beside the guard, just as a further shout from the engine, again invoking the speakers hereafter, reminded his comrade that he was no longer a servant of the public. "'Well, perhaps you're right, guard. It will be quite a novel experience, camping out on the up-track.' With a shrill in his whistle and a wave of his arm, the guard swung himself up on to the footboard and proceeded to haul himself along the carriages towards his own van. "'I'm sorry, sir,' he called down to Smith, a few seconds later as he was drawn past. "'I would have done it if I could.' "'Which means,' muttered Smith, "'that the instinctive venality of railway guards remains unimpaired by any action, direct or otherwise.' Slowly the train pushed its way into the night its tail-light gleaming evilly at the stranded traveller marooned upon the up-track. Smith watched the red eye turn to pink, the pink to a blur, which finally became absorbed in the grey wall of the landscape. The rumble of the train still crescendoed back to him, accentuated by the low-lying clouds. When that in turn ceased, he became conscious of a strange sense of loneliness. From where he stood, he commanded a limited view but nowhere could he detach from the varying degrees of shadow anything that was definitely suggestive of a house. A spot of rain on the back of his hand gave warning that it was time to think of shelter for the night. He glanced up at the clouds, which appeared desirous of showing how close they could get to the earth without actually touching it. Somewhere in the distance an owl hooted its challenge to the oncoming night. "'Direct action!' he muttered, as he picked up his suitcase and clambered down the embankment. Can be the very devil. There seemed nothing to do but to walk on until he struck some habitation, where he might either inquire the way to an inn, or else obtain shelter until morning. Instinctively he turned to the west, 
where a faint grey light still lingered. It seemed less inhospitable than the rest of the landscape. The pervading flatness of the countryside made it impossible to identify those hedges which bordered roads. The landscape gave the impression of being as trackless as the prairie, and as destitute of population as the Sahara itself. Occasionally some unseen beast, wrapped to the horns in the greyness of evening, would send forth a subdued low of foreboding, but no other sound broke the stillness. As the last flicker of grey vanished from the west, the rain began to fall, as if it had held back only in deference to the departing day. Putting down his suitcase by a gate giving access to a field of what looked like barley, Smith struggled into his coat. A few minutes later he was trudging against a slant of wetness that left him in no doubt as to its determination to soak him to the skin. With head down and shoulders hunched, he continued on his way, conscious of only two things, that the man who had labelled his coat rain-proof was a liar, and that direct action was the invention of Satan himself. At the end of half an hour's steady plodding, he had dropped direct action, and found himself concentrating, with all the misanthropy of which he was possessed, upon the maker and the vendor of his coat. At length a gate brought him quite unexpectedly to a promising-looking road. Even in this land of apparent troglodytes there must be some progressive spirits who lived above ground. As if fate had wearied of the game and had decided to throw in her hand, a few minutes later Smith found himself standing before a pair of wrought-iron gates, opening on to what appeared to be a drive. He tried them. They were locked. He struck a match. The wind blew it out. He struck another. A spot of rain extinguished it. After exhausting some half a dozen matches and all his patience, he decided to make an effort to scale either the gates or the wall visible on either side. In all probability this was the only house for miles round. He realized the risk he was running. He might be shot, or arrested, or even torn by dogs but anything would be preferable to his present intolerable condition. He had already roundly cursed the station-master for not possessing a more compelling personality. To ensure greater freedom of movement, he removed his raincoat and threaded one of the sleeves through the handles of his suitcase. He then tied the two sleeves round his neck and swung the case behind him. The sensation of being half-choked was not pleasant. Grasping the ironwork of the gate, he proceeded to haul himself up. In the course of the next few minutes, he realized that the high priests of obstacle races had proved themselves lacking in imagination. To climb a high gate in drenched garments, with a suitcase tied to your back by the sleeves of a raincoat, epitomized a veritable grand national of obstacles. When he eventually descended on the inner side of the gate, he was conscious that the front of his right trouser leg was ripped from knee to hip. Two buttons had been torn from his coat, together with about two square inches of material. He had dropped his hat on the roadside of the wall, and the raincoat had caught on the spike, leaving a considerable section of the skirt fluttering somewhere between heaven and earth. In short, he had left about those gates sufficient apparel to enable a really intelligent detective to deduce both the act and the gender of the perpetrator. Allowing the suitcase to remain strung behind him, Smith began to explore what was obviously the drive belonging to a residence of some size. A few yards up he was able to identify the porter's lodge. 
He paused irresolutely and glanced at his wrist-watch. The luminous hands pointed to five minutes to eleven. Should he make his appeal to this unknown Horatius, or proceed to the house itself? Arguing that a servant was not likely to manifest hospitable tendencies to a wayfarer appearing before him minus a hat, two buttons from his coat, a strip of his trousers, and about a third of his raincoat, he decided to make for the house, and risk the possibility of being treed by a dog. It was foolish to look on the dark side of the adventure. The owner might possibly prove to be an eccentric, who would see nothing unusual in one man scaling another's gate after dark, in order to offer to spend the night with him. The place might even turn out to be a private asylum, which would render explanations unnecessary. If it were a ladies' school, his act would appear in the light of romance. He would, in all probability, be handed over to the gardener, and in the morning become the hero of a hundred pigtailed hearts. There was always the possibility of his host-to-be turning out to be a bad temper and a good shot, in which case the responsibility for the explanation would devolve upon him. It was all very interesting. Still, the dark, tree-bordered drive was devilishly long, and the rain on his uncovered head infernally wet, and that suitcase had gone in a real stranglehold. Just at the point when he decided that the drive was bewitched, and, like Vanderdecken's efforts to round the horn, continued for ever, Smith suddenly stopped dead. He blinked several times, as if to make certain that he really were awake. The strain of his suitcase, however, reassured him. There, a few yards ahead, was a girl at a window, apparently occupied in gazing down at him, whether in sorrow or in anger he could not say. He was prepared to swear that she had not been there five seconds before. She seemed suddenly to appear from nowhere, like rain at Henley Regatta. She must have drawn back a curtain, or suddenly switched on a light, but whatever it was, she was now looking out into the night, possibly at him. The light behind threw out her slim figure in strong silhouette. She was of medium height, he noticed, and was dressed in green. She— Then the picture was blotted out, leaving him gazing at a blank of darkness, and speculating as to whether or no there was sufficient left of the skirts of his raincoat to hide the rent in his trousers. Approaching the house warily, he mounted the steps, and felt about for a bell with which to announce his presence. Nowhere could he find anything suggestive of how a guest was to apprise the occupants of his arrival. It required the expenditure of two matches before he saw the handsome wrought-iron bell-pool on his right. Without hesitation he tucked at it. The strain of the suitcase was becoming intolerable. He thought he detected the distant whirr of an electric bell. As he waited for his summons to be answered, he found himself speculating as to the identity of the girl at the window. Was she the mistress, or the daughter of the house? Was she beautiful, or did her nose crinkle when she laughed? Would she realize the humor of the situation, or would she see in him only a vagrant who had audaciously climbed the ancestral gates to arouse the household at dead of night? Possibly she kept a covey of hungry hounds, which were automatically loose at the first alarm. For one thing he was thankful. It would not be she who would open the door. Should she appear subsequently, there would in all probability be some hospitable chair or table behind which she could take cover, and thus hide the deficiencies of his clothing. Suddenly he became conscious of the grotesque figure he must present, with his suitcase tied to his back 
by the saturated remnants of a raincoat, which really was not a raincoat at all, but a vivid, palpitating lie, which direct action and Norfolk weather had been successful in exposing. He essayed to undo the sleeves tied under his chin, but they seemed reluctant to part. The tension, coupled with the rain, had hardened the knot. The sound of bolts being withdrawn hastened his movements. Pulling his suitcase round to the front, he tried to slip the raincoat over his head, and thus disembarrass himself of the two encumbrances in one movement. Something, however, had apparently caught, for what remained of the skirts of the tattered garment fell over his eyes, effectually blinding him to anything that might result from his summons. He struggled to free his head, or at least his eyes, but the wretched garment seemed suddenly to have assumed the proportions of a marquee. The sounds in front of him continued. From what he heard of the drawing of bolts, he decided that the girl at the window must be in nightly fear of abduction. As he struggled with the enveloping folds, he became conscious that a light had somewhere broken out from the darkness. He could see it indistinctly through the material of the lying raincoat, with which he was unwillingly playing at Blindman's Buff. Suddenly a tear manifested itself just in the line of his vision. The door had been opened some ten or twelve inches where it was held by a chain. Through the slit he saw the figure of an old man, garbed in a royal blue dressing-gown, time-worn and obviously made for one of slimmer build, a pair of carpet slippers and a bandana handkerchief loosely twisted about his neck. At the sight of two eyes peering at him from the khaki-coloured folds of the tattered raincoat, the old man started back. "'I'm frightfully sorry,' apologised Smith in muffled tones, as he continued to struggle with the infernal thing that seemed determined to envelop him for ever. "'I am frightfully sorry, but could you possibly put me up for the night?' The expression on the old man's face at this unusual request struck Smith as irresistibly funny, and he laughed. At the same moment the raincoat fell away from him, carried to the ground by the weight of the suitcase. "'Mr. Alfred!' The old man whispered the words as if afraid of being overheard. In his eyes was a look half of fear, half of incredulity. "'Mr. Alfred!' he repeated, as his trembling fingers began to fumble with the chain on which the door was held. A moment later it was opened to its widest extent. Smith stepped across the threshold, tripped over the suitcase, and lurched forward. As he fell, he clutched wildly at the dingy dressing-gown, got the wearer round the knees, and brought him down in real rugby style. A moment later the two men were sitting toe-to-toe, -to -toe, gazing into one another's surprised eyes. The dressing-gown had parted up to the knees, exposing grey-worsted underwear, and what looked like the tails of a nightshirt. Throwing back his head, Smith laughed. The expression on the old man's face, suggestive of a medley of emotions, coupled with the wild absurdity of the adventure, rendered him almost hysterical. The more he looked at the quaint figure opposite, the more ridiculous the thing appeared. "'What is the matter, Willis?' inquired a quiet and perfectly inflected voice. Smith looked up, sobered as if by magic. There, standing at the head of the stairs, and looking gravely down at them, as if accustomed to seeing two men in nondescript garments sitting on the hall mat late at night, was the girl he had seen at the window. The question seemed to break the spell. The butler scrambled awkwardly to his feet, hastily wrapping the dressing-gown about him, whilst Smith rose behind the remains of the raincoat, which he modestly draped over the chair in his trouser-leg. 
"'It's Mr. Alfred come back, Miss Marjorie,' whispered the old man hoarsely, and, clutching Smith by the coat-sleeve, he broke down and sobbed like a child. "'Great Gulliver!' cried Smith, and in his astonishment he dropped the tattered remnants of the raincoat. End of chapter 1